one of the functions of my job is to be present with people um, at the time of their death. And so there have been a few times where I've been present for the moment of death and then obviously many times, countless times, where I have been with the family just after a loved one has passed away. And as such, you get a real picture, uh, just what a violent act death is. Uh, it's just, it's ugly, and, uh, and it's fought, and if, if ever you've doubted that we were created with bodies that weren't originally intended to die, uh, then you need to be present when someone is dying. Because it, it's unnatural in, in, a, in a really kind of way that may seem odd. It's unnatural. And maybe because it is so violent to our senses, the wealth and technology of Western culture has allowed us to largely shield ourselves from death's reality. I'm always struck when I go to a traditional funeral at how different the picture of that deceased person is from the one that I've seen just a few days earlier. We spend, on average in America today, $9,500 uh, on a traditional funeral, and a large portion of that goes to helping us get the idea that maybe the person is just sleeping. And you don't fault families for that. Again, death is such a violent thing to our relationships that no one faults a, a, a grieving family for wanting their last earthly image to be of a person that appears to be sleeping. And yet, we all must remind ourselves that it does shield us from the reality of death. And Christians sometimes go through that same kind of exercise in denial when we think about the death of Jesus. In fact, our little segment of Christendom largely doesn't like to think about the death of Jesus at all. We just want to get to Easter Sunday. But we're not alone in that. Do you realize the dominant image of Christianity, the dominant symbol of Christianity, wasn't originally the cross? It, it didn't show up as the dominant symbol until the 4th or 5th century. Prior to that, the dominant symbol of Christianity was the ichthus, that kind of simple fish drawing that you see. It wasn't until the 4th or 5th century that the cross became central to our imagery, and even then the cross originally was portrayed as empty and Christ above it, as if the, 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 the population of Christians alive at that time just didn't want to stop and think about a dead or dying Jesus on the cross. And so we go through these real exercises in denial to, uh, to avoid thinking as the Bible would have us think about the death of Jesus. To the point that when those who are charged with preparing sermons for Blue Valley Baptist Church are studying a particular passage of Scripture and come across a word that portrays for us the violence of Christ's death, we do everything possible to avoid using that word in the title of the message, even though the word itself shows up in the text. The word is slaughter, and it's a word in the time of Scripture, as for the most part today, is used to describe how your cow becomes your hamburger. 
how livestock are killed for consumption. We even shield ourselves from that in the suburbs. I mean, we go to the grocery store, everything is neatlessly and bloodlessly packaged. We don't stop and think about how it got there. We just, we just exercise denial. We want to avoid death. We for certain want to avoid the, the horror of the death of Jesus Christ, and yet Scripture will not allow us to. So today we are going, as we continue our series of messages through Psalm, or excuse me, Isaiah 53, we are going today to pause and linger over the slaughtered servant, Jesus Christ. We've learned about his life. We have pondered what he did in his death. Today we're going to linger over the death itself. If you would please find Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. Today, we are going to see three things about the death of Christ that should arrest us, that should capture our attention. And the first of these things is this. The death of Jesus was voluntary. was voluntary. Look at verse 7 of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We get on some level that Isaiah, seeing the death of Christ, 700 years in his future, being inspired by God to have this vision and record it for us, we get that he's leaning into the idea that this was voluntary, but maybe not to the degree that we should. You see, those first words, oppressed and afflicted, may just kind of roll over us. It would be easier for us to kind of get where Isaiah is going if we translated them or thought about them in in another appropriate way. The word oppressed is unjust or unjustly, and the word afflicted is cruelly. Jesus Christ was unjustly and cruelly slaughtered. And with that in mind, we are then to ponder the significance of him not opening his mouth. All of us have had the experience of being someone else's verbal pinata, haven't we? Where, where someone outside of us, outside of our presence, talks about us in disparaging ways, makes sport of something in our lives that as brothers and sisters in Christ, they should come alongside in. We've all had that experience, or we've all had the experience of someone coming up to us and actually to our face being unfair. And in those situations, it's almost impossible for us to not defend ourselves. It's almost impossible for us to remain silent. In fact, it's so almost impossible that we never do it. We never do it. Social media would not exist if we didn't have this need to defend ourselves or to defend our point of view. It just wouldn't exist. We cannot keep silent when we are mistreated. But Jesus Christ was unjustly and cruelly treated, and he didn't open his mouth. Oh, that's right. He did open his mouth twice to the Jewish authorities who were accusing him of blasphemy, he said something which made them even more convinced that he was blaspheming God, equating himself with God. To the Roman authorities, who 
were being told that Jesus was going to launch an insurrection rather than renounce his kingship. He said, I could stop all of this and I'd have legions of angelic armies defend me. You see, the only time he did open his mouth was actually to step into the pitch, to get hit, to take the cruel and unjust death that was facing him. In fact, Isaiah says that he was like a sheep that is led to slaughter. Silent led to its shearers. You see, livestock on the precipice of slaughter just think it's Tuesday. If you've ever been to a slaughterhouse, and I'm going to guess that most Johnson County residents have never been to a slaughterhouse. It's one of the benefits of growing up in the woods like me. If you've If you've ever been to a slaughterhouse, you get that the cattle come off the truck just thinking, okay, well, new place, like the place. And then suddenly, they're dead and being transformed into your steak for dinner. They have no idea. Of course, of course there's no reason to object. But Jesus Christ knew what was being done to him and knew that it was unjust and that it was cruel and he was silent. Why? Well, I think Isaiah wants us to compare verse 6 and our sheepdom with verse 7 and, and Christ's silent sheep. You see, all we, verse 6, are like sheep who have gone astray. We cannot Keep one foot in front of another when it comes to being obedient to the will of God. And yet Jesus Christ, with the most heinous of all acts being perpetrated against him, did not seek to defend himself, which paints for us a a detailed picture of the voluntary nature of the death of Jesus Christ. In weeks like this, in Holy Week, as we approach Good Friday, and especially on Good Friday, it is very easy for us to get so swept up in the emotion of Christ's death on our behalf to begin to adopt a kind of poor Jesus mentality. Look at, we in our minds say, look at what happened to him. But all of Scripture, and Isaiah 53, 7 in particular, say it didn't happen to Jesus. Jesus was in charge of the situation. Jesus was dictating what was happening to him. And the reason that he was doing that was because he was perfectly fulfilling the will of the Father. So while we will all be swept up in some appropriate emotion as we ponder the enormity of the death of God for our sin, let us not veer into pity as if Jesus had something happen to him. He was in control. He was never more powerful than what he was by his will on the cross. The death of Jesus was voluntary. But then something else Isaiah points out, which we've already hinted at a little bit, the death of Jesus was unjust. Look at verse 8. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. 
And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? We see those first words, by oppression and and judgment, and, and we understand that those are speaking to the legal processes that brought Jesus to the cross. And we understand that the legal processes by which justice was meted out to Jesus were stacked against him. As the legal processes have been stacked against marginalized and voiceless people throughout human history, it would have been very easy for the people of that time, that generation, to look at the cross and say, Oh, sure, another Jew, another poor Jew being executed by the occupying Roman government. There's a reason that Jesus is an icon for for voiceless people. There's, There's a reason that Jesus is an icon for those who champion civil rights because they look at someone against whom the legal processes were stacked and they say, he gets it. He understands my experience. And we could stay right there and we could ponder all of that injustice that continues to exist in our world. But Isaiah, while alluding to it and acknowledging it happened, doesn't want our attention to go just there. He wants it to go deeper to what's happening beyond the visible eye. And he does that when he says, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that he was killed, stricken for the transgression of my people. What's he saying? He's saying, you know, everybody looking on to this didn't get that the biggest injustice of that event was not what a government did to a poor man. The biggest injustice is that he's there and I should have been. My sin put him there. Let me tell you something about the nature of my job. A good portion of my job is spent looking out windows, especially on sermon writing day. On sermon writing day, which for me takes place the day I work from home out of my home office, I will type a little and then I'll look out the window, sometimes for a long time, trying to figure out where do I go from here. And so when I was writing this sermon about a month ago and I came to verse 8 and was understanding that what Isaiah is saying is that the greatest injustice taking place was the fact that he died instead of us and we should have, I began to think to myself, well, how can I illustrate that? And my mind goes to all of the trite and tried illustrations that we've all heard. You know, you are pulled over for a traffic ticket is the most trite of them. And, and when the judge says you have to pay it, Jesus steps in and pay your fine. And sometimes we elevate that and say you've committed a murder, but Jesus steps in and takes your execution. And I was trying to think through how can I illustrate this? And then I was struck for the first time in over a quarter of century preaching Easter season messages. I was struck for the first time that there's no illustration that does it justice. There is literally nothing that I can point to in the physical world that would help us understand better the truth that a perfectly holy God, sinless in both his eternal experience and in his enfleshed experience, a perfectly holy God took on the filth and the sin of me and of you when he died. There's no illustration that I can give that would paint for us adequately the injustice of that. 
So yes, Jesus was the victim of a system that worked against him, and yes, marginalized people have and should look to him as one who's walked in their shoes, but the greater truth is this, for every person, he was there and we should have been, and he's God and we're not, and there's no greater injustice than that. So Isaiah in this little section has shown us that the death of Jesus was voluntary and the death of Jesus was unjust. There's one last thing in this little section that he wants to do. He wants to remind us of a great truth that he'll camp out on in the passage we'll look at next week on Resurrection Sunday. Here's the truth. The death of Jesus was temporary. It was temporary. And that's why when we read this and come to the realization of the injustice that we visited on Jesus, that we can have hope. Look at verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. And you may read that and think, well, wait a minute, Derek, that doesn't sound very temporary at all. I mean, for crying out loud, they're talking about burying him in the first part of verse 9. In the last part of verse 9, they're talking about the injustice that caused him to die. So how is that helping me start to catch a glimpse in these verses of the temporary nature of the death of Jesus? Well, let me, and I know everybody's going to be excited about this, let me give you a very brief lesson in Hebrew poetry. Okay? <laughs> Yay. But let me give you a little brief lesson. Now, when we're learning about poetry in grade school, we start with its most basic form, and that's the idea that poetry is uh, writing in which words rhyme, sounds rhyme. Obviously, hopefully, we know that poetry is more than that, but that's how we start sounds rhyme. That's the most basic form of English poetry. The most basic form of Hebrew poetry wasn't a rhyming of sounds. It was a rhyming of ideas. And it explains why so much of your reading in the Old Testament maybe seems to you repetitive. Let me show you a classic example. Exodus chapter 15 verse 2. The Lord is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. That's two stanzas from uh, uh, an extended poem in the book of Exodus, both of which illustrate parallelism, which is what this rhyming of ideas is. The Lord is my strength and my song, and then in the next line of that stanza, it's expanded and amplified. He has become my salvation. Uh, a, a real clear example of parallelism is this next bit. This is my God and I will praise him. And then a restatement and an amplification. My Father's God and I will exalt him. Do you see how that works? The first line of a stanza is amplified by the second line. And it happens over and over and over again. It's an expansion and an amplification of the thing that was first said. All right, lesson over. Knowing that about Hebrew poetry, you would expect, I expected when I was studying this, something different in the first part of verse 9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. And I was asking myself when I was doing my study, well now wait a minute, how does rich man equate with wicked persons? 
And I wrestled a little bit knowing that he's already raised the specter of injustice. I was thinking about how, and you see this frequently in the Old Testament, the rich oppress the poor. And I thought, well, maybe that's it. But that didn't seem right. And I felt good when I did further study because that doesn't seem right to the vast majority of scholars who study this particular text. Instead, what is happening with this poem is not an expansion and elaboration of an original idea. It's surprising us with a new one. It's meant to do exactly what it did to me. It is to arrest my attention. It's to capture my attention. And we see two things here that shouldn't exist in the same universe. We see someone making their grave, dying with the wicked, and then being buried with rich men in his death. And we remember how this was fulfilled literally in the life of Jesus. He died with the wicked, with criminals suffering fate for their crimes, and yet a rich man, a Pharisee named Joseph of Arimathea, took the body of Jesus, which otherwise would have been discarded in the Jerusalem dump, and was allowed to bury that in his family tomb. What Isaiah is seeing here, which he will expand on more next week, is there's something unusual that should cause us to pause and linger over the death of Jesus. And what he is seeing breaking over the horizon, not the sun, but the very beginnings of that daylight that begins to show early in the morning that will let us know that the death of Jesus was temporary. So the death of Jesus was voluntary. He was not powerless. He was in control of the situation. The death of Jesus was unjust. And yes, he was the victim of the the injustice of the Roman world in the first century, But more than that, he was the victim of the injustice that required him, a sinless God, to die for our sins. But the death of Jesus was also temporary so that we serve here today a risen Savior. Now, I I said earlier that a large portion of my job spent looking out a window. And probably I spend more time looking out a window when I'm writing sermons on Wednesdays saying, okay, God, I think in what I've written, I've adequately explained the text to our people. But now what are we supposed to do with it? I mean, what are we supposed to do with it? And sometimes what you're supposed to do with it is just simply worship. I mean, you're confronted with the truth, and the application of that truth is for you to say, you are God and I am not, and holy be your name. I mean, sometimes that's the only application that we need. Maybe more often than not, that's the only application that we need. But I found myself continuing to kind of be troubled. What do I do with this? What do I do with this? And that always begins to be very, very personal. And suddenly a thought occurred to me that had never occurred to me before. Jesus died for my sins, even those that I'd don't really think he needed to die for. Here's, here's why I began to think that way. It goes back to what we said earlier. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? They looked on and said, well, something's bad is happening to that guy. It never occurred to them that what was happening to that person was a direct result of their sin. And in the, the, the life that I live, I... I recognize that there are some things in my life for which, yeah, I get that Jesus would need to die for that. That's heinous. That's bad. 
But most of the other stuff, yeah, okay. I mean, I get theologically I'm supposed to say that, but I don't really functionally, practically believe it that way because I don't deal with those lesser sins in the same way because I'm convinced of my own righteousness. All of us, on some level, are convinced of our own righteousness. Paul rehearsed his righteousness in Philippians chapter 3. Talked about he, how he had uh, obeyed the Jewish law and he was faultless in the o- obedience to that Jewish law. And, and I can find myself frequently, as I reflect on my own life, rehearsing all of the reasons that, that I should be righteous. I've, I've never done drugs. I, I've never been drunk. I was a virgin when I got married. I've never intentionally looked at uh, an image of pornography in my life. I've been faithful to my wife. For crying out loud, I'm a preacher. A rehearsing of all of that. But never stopping to think that the self-righteousness that I feel at times because of all of that required the death of Jesus. The pride that we feel in rehearsing our own righteousness required the death of Jesus, which got me back to the point Jesus died for the sins that I really, frankly, don't think he needed to die for. Teenagers, Jesus died for that disrespectful eye roll that you give your parents or your teacher or leader. Mom, Jesus had to die for that juicy bit of gossip that you want to share with someone else that they don't need to know, but you just want to share it and so that you all can feel self-righteous around whatever's going on in that person's life. Dad, Jesus had to die for you coming home and being disconnected and inattentive to your family after a long day. You think, well, those are bad. No, there's sin. There's sin. There's sin. And Jesus had to die for them. And that's the greatest injustice in human history. So maybe the outcome of all of this is just simply that we take our sin more seriously than what we tend to. I mean, that we really wrestle with having received Christ Jesus the Lord walking in him. That we don't belittle and bypass tiny little things in our minds which still are part of the greatest injustice perpetrated in human history. While at the same time being thankful that because he did that willingly, willingly, you and I can call God our Father and look forward to eternity with him. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.